Hi, I'm Maureen O'Brien, and this is The Sirens of Audio. One of my favourite Dan Starkey appearances as a Sontaran in the Big Finish range, and that is Torchwood, The Great Sontaran War. I've spoken no, about it before. You don't want to talk of that. Yes, I do. No, you don't. You want to put, you want to put that in after, when you're talking about it, don't you? Well, maybe. Let me have a look and see. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see what he's... What about something with the again? Sorry, do you really want to put it in there? Oh, I couldn't think of anything else. No, I knew, I, I knew that's why you were doing it. <laughs> it was there on the screen, so I went, okay, we'll do that one. Yeah, no, you want to put that in when you're talking about it. Oh, righto, boss. Oh, I know you. Come on, I've listened so much of your work now. I'll we'll see. You, you'll kick yourself later and go and there. G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who on audio. I'm Dwayne. And I'm Philip. G'day audiophiles, g'day Dwayne. And everyone send Philip a cyber cuddle. He's feeling a bit poorly today, but he's soldiering on nonetheless. Thanks, Philip. Thanks, Dwayne, but I'm much better by now. <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> I better be better by now that you're listening to this. I'm, just, yeah, so I'm sure I'm fine by now. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We can still send you cyber cuddles. Oh, shucks. All right. Uh, today is a, we're going to be speaking with Dan Starkey, who uh, fans of the new series and of Big Finish will know him very well, mainly playing a Sontaran called Strax. That's the Sontaran that he plays. But he does lots of other Sontarans as well. And uh, what we'll discover is that he does lots and lots of other audio stuff and has been acting for some time. And uh, yeah, it's going to be great to share that chat, Philip. And even writing. Yes, it will be fun. Of course. The writing is uh, good too. But uh, do you know what, Philip? Yeah, hmm? I know. You do? Yeah. You do? Yeah, Can't you act so a little looking, bit surprised? I'm, I'm, I'm really looking for. Okay. I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. So, what, Dwayne? <laughs> we have to jump down the rabbit hole. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> So I'll make it a, a, a Dan Starkey and Sontaran-related uh, rabbit hole topic today, Philip. I just want to talk about the designs of the Sontarans over the years because, I don't know, the Cybermen have changed quite radically over the years, but have the Sontarans changed just as radically over the years, even through the, through the classic series and into the new series? Um, do you have a preference of the Sontaran design? Do you always default back to the Time Warrior and to what? Lynx as your favourite, or what? And and you know, just give us your thoughts on that. What a great question! I wish I'd thought about it earlier. Um, <laughs> you can think about a, it right now. It's a really obvious question. I wish I'd thought of what you were going to ask. Um, I must confess, Lynx is the Sontaran is my default in his lovely silver shiny. Um, what do you call it? Sort of the puffer suit sort of look. Um, <laughs> it, it reminds me, I used to have a puffer vest, which was very similar material. 
Um, yeah, no, I to me that that is still the first Sontaran I go to. Though I'd, I, when they came back in the blue for the new series, I really liked that. Um, I mean, the three doctors, Lauren Hardy, well, it was Lauren Hardy, yes, but tall and short. One I thought was a bit sort the of the two doctors. The sorry, the two doctors. What did I say? I was trying to think that you were you were doing my head in there, Philip, with the three doctors. You said oh, two doctors. Thank you, two doctors. Um, yeah, with the tall and the short. I I, I think they were that. both tall. They were tall and taller, weren't they? Were they tall and taller? Just, yeah. Yes. I, I don't know. What I th- I'd say that was probably the the least consistent of all the designs. Was the two doctors ones? Yeah, it, very it, strange. It, it sort of mixed mixed the whole mark of their history because the whole point is they're from a very high gravity planet. Therefore, they you know being pulled down, which is why they're short and stocky. Yes. To survive high gravity, I mean, big, tall, and thin. Well, they just fall over and couldn't get up again. Um. So yeah. So I guess when they came back, and I I. Loved them the whole time. I people talk about the fact that the new series are quite different to Links. I actually, I always found Links and the Sort of Time Experiment they're just funny, and they're funny in a macabre, awful way. In even the Sort of Time Experiments with doing all those experiments on people, but just the the the, the cold way he takes you know, talks about how long they survived for and lists the people and how long, long they could breathe underwater and all those sort of bits and pieces. It's black, but it's funny. It's it's a very black humor. And I think that humour is what actually Russell T picks up on in the new series. And Stephen Moffat kind of writes it like a sitcom. I mean, the Paternosa gang is, you know... <laughs> mm. I've been watching a few of... I've been watching Coupling um, by Stephen Moffat, and which is not at all what I expected. I mean, I'd You've never seen it before? This show. I hadn't seen it before. And yeah, so I'd seen I, all those before uh, before Doctor Who. So right, well, there you go. I mean, day. I'd heard about it and people talked about how funny it was. But I'd just never seen it. And then I saw it's, it's on one of the streaming services out here. And so I've been watching them all through and just the clever way he constructs and what's, all his timey-wimey stuff, it's all in there. But the way he puts relationships together, people together, and then you see the Paternoster gang and it's just a sitcom. So Stephen Moffat's got the sitcom family, um, you know, which is just, I adore it. So I actually love the whole history of all of them um, all the way through. I think they're very clever. What about you? What's your... What's your Default setting. I never saw the Kevin Lindsay Sontarans as funny, but I do recall, you know, that first cliffhanger where he removes his helmet. That always terrified me yeah. as a kid. Uh, and you see his tongue, just a, just that one little thing with the tongue sticking out, is synonymous with the Sontarans, and I found it really scary. Um, I have a I have a fondness for the invasion of time Sontarans. And that is the that is the one where the the soldier Sontarans, so not the leader, but the soldier ones were a bit, bit like doofuses. They were a bit silly. Um, there's a great scene in the TARDIS where they kept it in, where the Sontaran trips over on the chair, uh, and falls over. I think on the that's, sunbed. Yep. Yeah, that's that's really funny. Uh, but the but the voice, I don't know what the accent is that that Sontaran's got in that one. Is it Store? I think it's Store is the yeah, name of that Sontaran. What what is his accent? Do you remember? And he's got a kind of a lisp as well, which uh, is very, very quirky. But I've always loved that story. And, um, yeah, so... And they, but ca- of co- they carry a big gun. There's nothing like a big gun. Yeah, true. <laughs> Two Doctors. Yeah, I enjoy the story, but the Sontarans just don't make sense in that one whatsoever, the design of them at any rate. Um, I think the performance in the Two Doctors is okay. 
Yep, I agree. But the design, no, nah, no, that doesn't work at all. So that that would be the one that stands out out of the entire history of the Sontarans, classic and new series, that uh, that just simply doesn't work. So, um, and and the new series ones, I think, I, I really, I think I prefer the, the, the look of the Sontarans in Flux. Just that one episode... Was it, it was the one episode, wasn't it? Or were they in the last? No, one as well? the, the, the last episode too. Because yeah, so, so those. Out. Yeah, those. I've only seen it the once, but I do, I do recall that the the Sontarans there. I really thought their design was good. Like many things in the Chibnall era, uh, the design and how things looked was sensational. So I've got to give it credit for that Sontaran design. I think it's great. I'm not quite sure why they all go to bed for thirty minutes exactly the same time. <laughs> Well, we can quibble about that, but, but they, uh, do, they, they do look good walking to their beds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's crawl out of the rabbit hole. So let me throw in a trailer for Paternoster Gang Series One. How's that, Philip? That's a great idea, Dwayne. Okay, let's do it. We'll be back with Dan Starkey in a moment. I am Madame Vastra. I am Strex. Jenny Flint. Thanks for asking. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. It's Inspector Cotton of Scotland Yard. Don't tell me. Something terribly mysterious has occurred and he requests our urgent assistance. It was just like a real person. Only you could see right through it. The Paternoster Gang. Heritage. Volume 1. Ghosts are a long-standing and growing threat in this world. All the writing on the subject agrees. That's fiction, Strax. Call me a liar all you like. I know what I've read. It's a mystery beyond mortal comprehension. You mean they're undead? Yes. Eminence. Dozens of them. Auto moots activated and commencing pursuit. Look, one of so likes electric cars. There's no driver? Does my true appearance alarm you, human? You are so fragile, little human. I could end your life in a heartbeat. You're like Vastra. Vastra is filled with artifice and affectation. I am Vela. I am nothing like your madam. A high level of negative chronons. Negative chronons? Yes. Are they worse than the ordinary kind? <laughs> they sound good. Big finish. We love stories. Tea. tea is an abomination. And do not threaten me with muffins. When the new series came back, one of the best old creatures to come back was the Sontarans. And the voice that you'd be familiar with, though we don't always see his face, is Dan Starkey. And today we have Dan Starkey with us. Dan, welcome. Hello. Very pleased to be here. Thank you. It's great to meet you in person. We we hear your voice all the time. We have seen you in at least one episode, um, but you have just become a, a usual voice we hear in our ears all the time. Yeah, I've I've done a fair old lot of uh, well uh, audio stuff now through through Big Finish and also BBC Books as well, and uh, and also I worked a lot for BBC Radio too in the past. So um, yeah, so my voice is uh, on the ether quite a lot. <laughs> would you would you put yourself now as a, a voice artist primarily, or what 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 do you still love to do in oh, terms of no, acting? I, I, I think- yeah, no, I, I'm an actor and voice artist, a voiceover artist. I think that, that, that's, how it, that's how I put it. But I don't, I, mean, I don't necessarily think that the two are sort of completely contradictory. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, I do a lot of voice. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about your youth and childhood? Where, where did you grow up? And tell us a bit about your family. 
Oh, right. OK. Um, well, I, when I was tiny, um, I lived in Cardiff, which is obviously known to Doctor Who fans now as the uh, home of the new series. So it's very strange so like remembering what Cardiff was like in the early 1980s um, from, from the uh, so glistening metropolitan pub that it is now. Um, there was much more decaying warehouses and seagulls. Um, and uh, that's where I first really got into some Doctor Who, sort of, sort of like, um, you know, when I was very, very young. The first things I can remember, sort of like um, watching, which really captured my imagination. And then we moved when I was about seven to the countryside, which is still on the Welsh border. Um, yeah, a place called Monmouth, which is the 19th century, as far as uh, TV Doctor Who goes. They use it a lot for um, sort of like uh, locations where they need a, a Victorian square and that sort of thing. So, um, yes, very, very rural and very sort of like, a, there, there are modern bits to it, but it's, it's, it's quite, a lot, quite a lot with quite Georgian. So what are your earliest memories of Doctor Who? Oh, okay. Um, the very first bit I can remember is being scared by a marshman uh, in full circle. Um, and I must have been about three or four. That. So I've told Auntie's, uh, Andrew Smith that, and he's uh, made him feel very, very old, which is uh, which was fun. But um, and then I think I can't remember sort of like a, the next one I can remember watching was uh, the end of Warriors Gate, and then Keeper of Truck, and then Legopolis, and then um, I think by then, oh, this this is very interesting. And then they had a whole because in the UK there was a big gap in between Tom Baker's very last sort of uh, series and Peter Davison's first one. They showed unprecedented on BBC, on the BBC, they showed quite a whole season of repeats. And I saw those when I was just the right age for, you know, four or five or something, and absolutely captured my imagination of this character who's different people at different times, and it's all sort of, some of it's black and white, some of it's colour or whatever. And I think that, that absolutely hooked me. So, um, yes. So I'm a child of the 1980s. So, um, yeah, that's a, that was definitely, all the 80s Doctors were the ones that I had growing up. So that would have been the five faces of Doctor Who, right? Yeah, that's what the five faces of Doctor Who, yeah. Which I think you're thinking 1982, some point. So yeah. So who would you say was your doctor? Oh gosh, it's it's a it's unfair. To say. It, 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 I think I think I associate them with different different points. But so Peter Davison was the one where I sort of, where I sort of first started watching regularly. Where you know if I missed it, then I'll be very very upset. And then, um, but yeah, and so I suppose Colin. Yeah, all all, all, all the eighties doctors were were kind of mine. But I think Peter Davison was the one that sort of anchored me. So like us being a fan. And then by the time Sylvester came along, I was like, I'd read lots and lots, lots of books, lots of big Peter Haining books about the history of the show and that sort of thing. So when uh, when there were references in Sylvester McCoy's episodes, I could go, ah, yes, I understand what they're doing now. Because I was a bit of a connoisseur by then, you know, when I was 10 years old. So, um, yeah, I could see what they were doing. And then, of course, I caught up with some, some of the uh, earlier series on um, on VHS. So did, did you get involved in fandom at all? No, well, there wasn't really... There weren't the networks so like around um, as easily accessible sort of like um, then as there are now, um, especially since you know most most of the time you know since I was seven I I I sort of was right in the sticks I was very much in the countryside so it was just something yeah but some, some some of my pals at school so sort of like uh, enjoyed it but not not quite as much as I did but I would I'll get my Doctor Who magazine once a month and that was uh, and that was exciting and I was like you know get the, read the books um, followed so I started to follow the uh, the Virgin New Adventures. Until it just yeah, and until they started releasing the missing episode, the missing adventures as well, and that just became far too much for me to afford. So uh, yeah, but I got to magazine, and that was my uh, that was my closest sort of like foray into fandom. Then I was aware that there was these, these things called conventions, but very far away. <laughs> so, at what point did you decide you wanted to become an actor, and what 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 caused you to do that? Um, I just did plays at school. It wasn't sort of something that. Um, that sort of like occurred to me sort of straight away. I mean, because I, I kind of, um, I think through the influence of Doctor Who, so like when I was little, I wanted to be a scientist. I definitely wanted to be a scientist. I was very interested in science. And then um, and then when I went to secondary school, 
think actually sort of studying science in the curriculum there sort of didn't exactly put me off it, but it didn't set me set me aflame exactly. But it did give me the uh, opportunity to do plays in school, and it sort of crept up on me that so like oh I'm quite good at this, and um, so I carried on to like doing school plays, and also at university I did I, I did a bit of acting as well. But it still took me uh, took me a little while after you know I did go straight to drama school after university. Um, so I, I went to drama school when I was about 27. So it's something, something, something that's sort of like, I got the bug in my teens as a kind of thing, just, just doing school plays and finding out that I was taking it more seriously than anybody else. Perhaps. But um, yeah, and it was, it, was, it, was just, it was just my thing. So what did you study and work at before you went to drama school? I went to the Bristol Olympic Theatre School. Um, and uh, yeah, I went there when I was 27. So I probably got a lot more out of it then. That I might have done if I'd gone when I was nineteen or so, but at least in, the, in those days they didn't. It, it wasn't. Yeah, I, th- I think now it's much more the option where it's like a you know, lots of kids go there when they're so like nineteen straight out of so you know, school. But um, then it was yeah, they, I think they had more of a range of ages. It's like going in there. But um, no, I had I had a, had a, I just had a normal job, office job in London for a couple of years at the same time as I was doing so like stuff on the fringe, you know, sort of sort of late, like sort of, sort of, sort of smaller scale stuff. Um, and then I sort of got to the point where I was going, I, in order to progress, to progress any further, I think I need to, I think I need to sort of take this, take this seriously in terms of the professional training. I'd always wanted to do it, but so like it was, um, yeah, I, one of my friends chivied me to uh, put in an application, and I put in an application late, and Bristol, uh, to, and Bristol was a, 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 a retired director who'd seen me doing something on the fringe, so I said, oh, Bristol might suit you, so I um, put, put, uh, put in an application, and then I got accepted. And then I went, oh, right, because I've sort of got a career now. That's a, well, that would have been on, on, the, on the first step towards one. So, um, so yeah, that was, that, was, that was a surprise. But it's all, it's all, it's all friends chivying as much as, as much as my industry as well. So, um, yeah. So what was life like as a young actor when you got out of drama school? What, what sort of work were you doing and how did you get around? It's, 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 always, it's always a big mixture. I mean, I, I think unlike some of my friends from drama school who – graduated and then it's the first time they came to you know first time they, they lived in London or whatever and so like you know it's sort of being sort of rootless and rudderless or whatever I, I'd already had that after university when I sort of like went to London and sort of you know you have that sort of culture shock of sort of going oh okay I've got to sort of pay rent and it's all you know th- things aren't things aren't going in a straight line or whatever so I, I had that and also I had so like, I, I knew enough people whose sofas I could bunk on if I needed to um but now for the first first couple of um yeah for the first so month a couple of months or a year or so after drama school, I think it was it was about keeping the momentum really. Because um, I was lucky enough to sort of like go straight into straight into work. I did a radio play, um, a couple of radio plays in my uh, uh, once in one of my final term at drama school, and then it's like one so sort of fairly soon after I graduated because there's a competition which um, the BBC runs, um, open to all the uh, graduates of drama schools called Carlton Hobbs Bursary. And Carlton Hobbs was a, uh, a British actor who played Sherlock Holmes in the 1950s, amongst many, many other things. So a prolific radio actor. And so the BBC had this yearly thing for sort of like a, the graduating cohort of drama schools to um, sort of be part of a team. And then uh, the sort of like the, the, the winning prize, they will draw a company um, who will join the uh, radio drama company, the, the radio rep. And that, that, that's like an in-house company of actors that the BBC have. Uh, because the BBC sort of like um, for, for a very long time, um, they're one of the few people who still made radio drama um, in this country. And um, and what they usually do is they get sort of like a certain number of actors, including sort of people that are famous with, you know, off stage and screen um, to be the lead roles. And then they'd have an in-house company of actors that you're a sort of weekly retainer. And then you do everything else. So um, 
I sort of like uh, I didn't actually sort of get that contract straight away, but um, I got the runners one of the runners up prizes, which was actually being in a radio play, and also it meant that I was on their I was on their radar. Um, so yeah, the first radio play that I did um, was an adaptation of a play called Another Country, um, which is a play about uh, so sort of the youth of uh, some of the Cambridge spies. Um, you know, so when, when they're at public school. Um, and um, there was a young actor in there called Tom Hilton, who I don't think has done anything since. Um, but that was, um, yeah. So, so it was, it was kind of a, <laughs> it was, yeah. So it was, yeah. And, 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 and that's what it was like. And so, uh, and then about eighteen months after I after I left, um, yeah, after I was out from Rob School, they invited me to be on the rep properly as well. So I didn't get the contract straight away as soon as I graduated, but um, I eventually did nine months uh, with with the BBC. And it's, it was a fantastic sort of training, especially so that soon out, because you're working with loads of really good actors and doing an amazing range of stuff, because not just on the, in the drama department, but anytime they need a voice on the BBC. So, um, yeah, we were, I think at one point, some of the cabinet papers had been released, you know, from 60 years ago about the Suez crisis. So I found myself doing a recording um, of Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister in the 1950s, sort of like um, with these released papers, sort of, which would go out on site the Today programme, the sort of news, you know, news programme on, you know, sort of eight o'clock in the morning, or whatever, or, or other programmes, you know, factual programmes, you know, grim stuff about knife crime and reading things out. So, and so it was this whole range and also these, um, the history of the world and a hundred objects. So sort of, you know, stuff about sort of um, mythology and history, as well as, you know, I play you know virtually every day and stuff so in terms of actually learning your job learning your craft as a um as a uh, a, 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 as a voice a voice artist um then there's there's no substitute for sort of learning by doing so um so yeah that, that was a very very good sort of proving ground for about nine months but um so that, that was, was a little after but immediately afterwards it was kind of yeah i was just uh, i did i did I, I was i was lucky enough to sort of like keep on keep on working and keep on just doing stuff which, um, which I think is the first hurdle, really, to any to anyone in that position. So it wasn't um, too long after I think you began acting that Doctor Who, the new series of Doctor Who, started uh, back in two thousand and five. As a as a fan of the show yourself, was that something you were actively seeking to get into or hoping you'd get into? Yeah, no, it was it was very exciting. It was the um, the, the thing was I remember being at my old office job before I went to drama school. And so like uh, having the BBC um, news page up and so, you know, so like in between, so like doing my spreadsheets or whatever. And then they had made the announcement and I sort of had this kind of <laughs> sit back, oh, they're bringing Doctor Who back. And it was around about the same time when I think I was auditioning or just thinking, oh, my friend was chivying me to sort of like uh, to make my application to drama school or so, because they announced it in about 2004, I think, the year before. Um, and that felt like a oh that felt, felt like a slight harbinger. So like oh well, anyway, yeah, quite an impossible dream. But it's like oh that that would be really good, wouldn't it? And um, no, I made no bones when you know when we had sort of like people from the industry visiting us at drama schools. So I was like, I quite like to be inducted. And then I remember because I was doing a Shakespeare play in a forest um, near Ipswich um, in the middle of nowhere, and um, I'd been invited to um, to audition for a for a TV thing which I couldn't make, obviously, because I was stuck in a forest um, in the middle of nowhere. And so, um, but, you know, these, these things happen very often. You know, the job is like buses, three, three things turn up at once and you, you know, can only do one of them then you're, and then you're unemployed for another three months. Um, but um, having a chat with my agent then about sort of like a, about after that, um, we are what, what I'd like to do. I just was, oh, it's my birthday next month. It'd be lovely if I could be so I can Doctor Who. That's my favourite programme. And um, I think it just happened to coincide with when they were bringing this on to back. 
and I think they'd made the decision to make them sort of like small and compact, squat, menacing and horribly powerful. And I don't know if they'd already cast Chris Ryan, who's, you know, to five, five foot. Um, and so they wanted people around that kind of that kind of height. But um, I think once you've got a restriction in that, 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 that narrows down the casting bracket. So, um, yeah, looking looking for performers of that particular of that particular size just means that you're in competition with fewer people. And um, and also Andy Pryor, who cast Doctor Who, he's always very good about opening the door to people who don't, you know, haven't necessarily had opportunities before. So it's kind of um, yeah. So it was it was, uh, it was just very fortuitous timing that, uh, that it happened when it did. So describe what that was like for you at the let's say the the first read through. Oh, the first read through. Oh God, yeah. Um, oh, I can't remember. I think I was yeah because my mum and dad are nearly a near a near Cardiff. I think I was visiting them at the weekend or I was back home for some reason. Because, yeah, you know, I, was sort of, I was sort of living out of a suitcase a bit. So I was back there for a few days. And I think my dad drove me to the studio sort of near Cardiff because it's only, you know, it's easy to get there. You know, there aren't any trains around there. So it was easy to get there, so, you know, so like 35 minutes. So it was felt, felt very strange <laughs> being driven to school that day. And then, um, so, but also, I mean, I was really, really early. So it's like I met, I met Jacqueline King um, and had a nice chat with her. And it was very well. It was my first TV job as well. It was my yeah. It was, so it's, yeah, it's quite a thing. I'm the first TV job and that sort of thing. And then so Russell came in and we chat with him. And I sort of pointed out the uh, fact that in the script it says they're running like slime foxes from a spiel snape. And it's like spiel 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 snape. That's uh, something that Eric Saywood made up, isn't it? And then and then his ear pricked, ears pricked up. And like oh right, <laughs> you recognised spiel snape as being a uh, as a reference because you know I read the novelisation of Slipback, you know, back in the 1980s. So. Um, yeah, although Eric Saywood's got a particular stamp on things, but um, so I, th- I think that marked me out a bit. But then, yeah, it was um, it was it, it was great, you know, just just all, all you could do in those sort of situations and sit there and breathe and just try and do try and do your job, and then yeah, just to just to not get overawed by it. But sitting there, you know, in a room full of it's about fifty people or so because it's not just the cast of the episodes, you know, so it's a double episode. There's also the entire production team, you know, everyone in there, because so, so everyone's on the same page. Um, and the room filling and filling and filling, and then sort of uh, David Russell and Catherine sort of like uh, sweeping in, sort of quite like a presence. And you know, David nearly being off script as well. You know, he's absolutely because you know he's absolutely in his pomp by then. You know, he'd been the Doctor for about you know, two, three years or so, and he's absolutely on it. And um, yeah, just been very exciting. And I think the uh, and yeah, I had the lines like, "This isn't war, this is sport." <laughs> it's like he laughs maniacally. It says in the script or something like that, which laughs with brutal joy. So I thought, mm, what, what, why do that by halves? <laughs> So when I really went for that, then that's sort of like that gained reaction. So again, it's the whole thing of, yeah, just, just someone throws you a ball, you throw it back. So Dan, where did you find the voice from? Was it something you experimented with? Did you just know know what you wanted to do? Or were there suggestions? What sort of notes did you get? I think, um, obviously, I, I, I had a VHS of the Time Warrior from when I was a kid, which I dug out and I watched that again, just to get an idea about Kevin, Kevin Lindsay's kind of thing, um, which I did, wasn't exactly how I did it. Um, but at the audition, I remember sort of uh, doing doing what the first read, just to show that uh, you know a bit more sort of um, straightforward, to show that I could act, you know, sort of like it's kind of um, you know the all, 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 all the, and so, you know the director Douglas McKinnon was going, yeah, it's great, you can see, you can see all the gears shifting and all that sort of things, so that's good. Um, and then the producer Susan, Susan Lee said, yeah, that's great. Um, can you make him a bit more uh, alien and interpret that and how you choose? So I'm going right. How can I go with this? Like, um, how about this? You know, so I can, yes, the fact that I sort of went for it and there's a bit more kind of like 
you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of blank incomprehension and rage at everything that isn't so tiring that you sort of get through there. Um, but in the first sort of story, I think Douglas, the director, was quite keen on them just being quite businesslike. So the voice is gruff and it's down there somewhere. But also, you know, you throw lines away. It's not it's not slowly threatening people in the way that, you know, sort of like a, 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 I mean, my very first day on set, I was strapping the doctor's companion to my fiendish device and threatening her. I mean, it's classic. So I, <laughs> and there were all those things where I was like, oh, I'm at work. I'm getting paid to do this as well. But it was um, it's a very, very, you know, re enjoyable day. But so, and all he was saying, it was like, just, just faster. It's just, it's a day at the office for you. So, okay, okay, fine. Um, so it was, yeah, a bit, a bit more sort of throwaway with the voice. But then, so I mean, so, there's some so obvious things about the uh, about, about, about the voice as well. So I guess it's hoarse sound there. It's rough. It's also there's there's so, yeah, there's there's soldiers. So shouting each other on the parade ground. It's all very mm, sort of. It's, it's got a sort of an attack to it. Um, but also. It's just surely physically with the uh, with the prosthetic, because you've got about you know five centimeters of latex on the side of your ears. You're slightly sort of slightly deafened by that. So actually being able to hear yourself, you know, when your ears are a bit, you know, you're a little bit louder than you would be normally. So that's where that's where it comes from as well. Am I shouting? I can't tell. That kind of thing. So um, there's all things that go into it. But at least by the same time, facts came along. I did it much more. Um, how my first instinct, first instinct. Had, been because there's a relish to quite a lot of uh, Strax's dialogue as well. So it was kind of, um, I had, yeah, I was, had can't blanch to have, excuse me, had have fun with it a bit more. So are you mic'd in the costume? No. No, no, no. Well, no, yeah, yeah. You've got, you've got a, a radio mic as usual. That's a boom. So uh, depending on where you're going. So yeah, everyone's got a discreet microphone on, the, on, on there usually. So how much ADR do you have to do at the other end? Does, does the costume restrict you so much you really have to just record, re record all your lines? Not this time. With the most recent series, with Flux, um, the Jodie Whittaker sort of uh, Sontarans, um, yeah, because this time they um, they had teeth as well. And the thing about prosthetic teeth is, no matter how good your technique is, they can get in the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, the, the, the teeth were something else. And also, just again, no matter which no matter which, which way you do it, so like if you're in layers and layers of prosthetics. It doesn't matter what time of year uh, it is, you're going to start perspiring inside it. And so depending on, because the, the motto with TV is hurry, 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 wait. So, you know, they've got an exacting schedule and basically they make sure that everything is, is ready to go straight away. So half the skill of acting on TV or film is keeping your powder dry and then being able to go at like a moment's notice, you know, when, when things happen. But, but that doesn't work with prosthetics. <laughs> Because no matter how much you've been sitting inside, not doing anything, waiting to go, this will still keep aspiring inside. You know, things like, you know, the, the weather will affect things, um, the temperature in the room. And so, yeah, there was, a, there was a scene with the most recent one, the flux, where we had to sort of reshoot the close-up of my face a couple of times just because the makeup just kept on sliding off <laughs> to go away, we were stuck there. For the, and, then, and then even by the time, by the last time they reshot it, then um, I had to go and ADR virtually the whole thing. And then by then, I'd done the scene about five times. So I just did it in one go because it was, yes, I could sort of lip syncing myself. It's, sometimes, sometimes it could be a chore, but this time it was so, so which design did you prefer? Because for me, aesthetically, I think the Flux on Taran's looked fantastic. They looked really, mm. really close to the uh, classic series um, Sontarans, more so than the original ones. But what was it like for you as, a, as an actor? Um, the, the original sort of like, sort of new series on Taran, the, the Strax design, 
uh, it's a lot easier to, from my point of view, was a lot easier to wear. I think this was more familiar, um, just because it's two, it's a two-part prosthetic. So it's like a cowl, like a big balaclava helmet um, with your face coming out of it. And then a much, much thinner sort of piece of rubber that goes over your face. So it's all in one, it's all in one piece. Um, whereas the flux one is sort of like about four separate pieces that go over different parts of the face. And so it moves in a slightly different way. I think it's also, you know, so I'm a little bit older, so like going into the suit and everything, and it just feels, yeah, just just more constricted as well. But um, yeah, more, more to think about. But with with any with any prosthetic, it's kind of um, you're almost learning. You're like a puppeteer almost. You're learning how to motivate that because it is your face, but it's not. So one thing I sort of like got got used to with Strax is that I had to couldn't do sort of more than that because then his eyes would disappear because his brow would just so deep. Um, so t- tilting my head, you know, sort of too too far forward, the eyes would disappear. There was another character who I played in Russell T Davis's Wizards versus Aliens, who was a goblin. So he had a massive nose. So I had to be very very careful um, when I moved my head around because one of his eyes would just disappear because it would hide behind the nose. And then of course, how you hit the lights—that's another—that's another thing as well. It's kind of um, how light reflects off this sort of thing, uh, off 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 the makeup in certain in, in certain planes. That are not your face, but it's like it's the it's the mask's place. Um, so th- th- there's a lot of technical stuff that you're you're very aware of when you're when you're doing that sort of thing. Is there actually any training in prosthetic acting? Because I mean, the more you describe it, the more complex it's seeming all the time. I think people, you know, you whip on a mask and that's it. But there's so much technique you're discussing. Has everyone written a book about it? No, I don't think so. But um, I think no, I think my my professional training, you know, was very physical. At Bristol, um, you know, we did a lot, with a hell of a lot of dance, which uh, which is not my natural strength, but it actually that made you very physically aware and very coordinated and stuff. And I think you know, you you, you as you the more the, the more experience you get at it, you sign the director will put, put point you in different directions and stuff. And then um, if you've got a brain in your head, you work out what's going to work in, in different ways. But as as ever, as I said, like like with the radio thing, you learn by doing it and you observe other people around you, not not necessarily in prosthetics, but you see how other actors. You know, sort of find find their find their frames and find life, whatever. How many? Obviously, when you uh, appeared, you were very popular with cast and and the public in terms of the characters you created. Um, were you expecting to get so many calls back? I mean, were you expecting that you know, so many years later, you'd still be playing such loved, uh, hated <laughs> creatures? It's a bizarre. It's, it's, the sometimes being loved, but you are loved. Yeah. Oh no. It's it's, it's great. Well, the thing it's, it's it's one of the big it's one of the big four monsters in the old series of Doctor Who. You know, it's all the Daleks, Cybermen, Sontarans, Ice Warriors. You know, those, those were kind of the ones when I was a kid. That def, def, definitely sort of been the one. So being the Sontaran, I thought, okay, this is good. I, I've earned my my part in the Hall of Fame now. But yeah, it's 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 you know, before just being in Doctor Who and so like just being those two episodes, that was kind of like a childhood ambition. Yeah, and actually, one of my friends in drama school I saw, who was a big Doctor Who fan as well, Phil Mulrine, who's worked for um, Big, written for Big Finish several times as well as actor form. Um, I sort of bumped into him, so like um, just after I'd sort of uh, got got the job, and he went, "All oh, right, so you're retiring now, are you?" <laughs> so, so peaked too early, eighteen months out of doing it, less than a year out of drama school, um, <laughs> and also lots lots of other people going, "You jammy sod, <laughs> did you get that so so, so quickly?" But um, but honestly, it's, it, it it is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, it's the um, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's extraordinary how how much uh, I've been able to go back to it and you know what 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 it's afforded me you know like a constant sort of like a little sort of touchstone thing. Now the classic series Sontarans were mostly in most cases they were very serious uh, monsters. Um, the new series ones and particularly Strax um, injected a lot of comedy into the character. So 
What what part do you think comedy has to play in the Sontarans themselves? Was it mostly Stephen Moffat who wanted to inject the comedy or was it between you and he or how did that work? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a wry humour to, if you listen to the Time Warrior, there's lots of slightly sort of like, um, you know, the, the hair is fine, the thorax of different constructions. There is that sort of slightly wry sort of attitude towards it. And so Robert Holmes is sort of poking at sort of certain things about the, the colonial mindset. I've, I've conquered the world, you know, so like a, you know, saluting the flag. They're, they are, they have a ludicrous element to them as well. I think that Stephen ran with that. So like a lot more. And so the thing is, you know, I, I, my job is very much to look at the script and so like work out how to tell the story best. And so, you know, when, when I got the script for A Good Man Goes to War, um, bearing in mind that uh, I'd done the uh, the two David Tennant ones and also the last episode I had a little cameo where, um, you know, I'd sort of like just lick my lips and go, and so I got knocked out by the doctor with a mallet. And then in the previous series, um, they had Chris Ryan doing a little cameo as well. So I had no expectations to, so like, they want you back to be the Sontaran, to, to be a Sontaran. Okay, great, it might be a line, so fine. And then I opened the script and so like this character strat just came off the page going, ah, this is fun. And so it chimes with what I can provide, some of my skill set as an actor. Um, but yeah, I, you, you play the character. Um, and if there is humour to be found there, I will find it. It's, it's, it's not just gags for the sake of gags. I think it all actually comes from, it's motivated by the character. It's different from sitcom and so on, you know, lots of, lots of just a series of, series of one-liners. Sort of it's, it's kind of the character, the, the character drives the humour um, and strikes the fish out of water all the time. You know, he's actually terribly polite. He's quite well-meaning, but he's a psychotic warmonger. So all this kind of thing, I look forward to crushing you in the field of battle, where I should crush life in your world that you went for. You know, that's, it's actually sort of like a, you know, it's, it's, it's just been nice. It is this kind of way, but obviously that doesn't read to us, and so it's, it, it, it it goes on like that. Did you ever create the backstory for what Strax was? You know, because it's, it's one of those bizarre things. The doctor turns up. Strax is a a nurse, um, with you know, mm. lactating. Um, did you ever try and put together, or were you ever given the backstory to that, or is the humour the fact that we just don't know, or did did you need as an actor no, to try I, and work I, out the backstory? I, I, I don't think yeah, you, you can sort of construct an entire backstory if you want to be as indulgent as that, but sort of kind of, I don't think it's necessary in order to tell that story. In that moment, that episode, he's there, you know, he dies at the end or whatever. Um, I think it's afterwards you can sort of take a step back and also, you, you, you play, you see what the situation is and you sort of see, see what, the, um, what, what, what the truth is necessarily. necessarily. And the, thing, the fun is, I think, you know, putting that idea out there and then letting everybody else sort of like construct a, a backstory potentially. But sort of, yeah, that's it. It will be something. It will be something convoluted and fiendish, given that it's come from the mind of Stephen Moffat. So I didn't want to sort of try, try and overthink it too much. <laughs> so um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think I could uh, tie myself in as many sort of like a narrative knots as he can. So, um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think you, you play the situation. There's opportunity for a big a big finish uh, spin-off there. Oh, what what? Strax the backstory. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Oh yes. <laughs> How many different Sontaran voices do you have? Because you've got you've got several different characters. You, you you always I mean I know it's a clone racing, but you do tweak your voices. Oh yeah, well, well the, the, there is there's a, there's a specific paradigm which is like this. You know the modern series ones are a bit more like that. If you listen to the old series, they are on horse. So I'm going by Kevin Lindsay, so you can almost hear a little bit of Australian in him as well. <coughs> the voice is slightly wider, um, but then <coughs> you work out. Sorry. <coughs> 
<coughs> I've warmed up, you see. Mm. I was going to say, how do you protect your voice? That's another question, but keep going first. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I'm doing, um, what I'm doing in the studio with Big Finish, I, I, I did I, it was occasionally bring a lozenge or some cough medicine with me, just if it does, does get too hoarse. But no, you, you warm up. Um, but it, you, again, it's 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 the it's the basis of um, of any acting. You look at the script and you work out what the character is, and then you you make tweaks accordingly. You know, if this is a particularly senior Sontar, and I'll, I'll put on. I've got a slightly more moustache voice, so it's a bit more down there. So I imagine him having mutton chops so, because he's like because it, it's also they're, they're like crabby military men, you know, from the nineteenth century as well. I think that's what it's very much open that kind of Napoleonic officer, you know, the unreformed British army, that kind of um, you know, it's all you know, Colonel Blimp, that kind of uh, that, that kind of. And, and I think also people accused some straps of sounding slightly Welsh at some points. So you know, I've never had a particularly strong accent. But, um, I think one of the things which I thought about is that sometimes he comes out a bit like Roger Livesey in um, The Life and Death of Colonel Bimp, the Power of Pressburger film. And sometimes you can hear his slight Welsh tones coming out as well. So it's probably, it's probably, it's probably that as well. So it's kind of... Uh... But uh, other sometimes, you know, if, if they've got to be more sort of like... To differentiate them, you know, there's, things, there's very slight differences in the pitch in sort of like, you know, sort of rhythm of delivery you know, how high up they are at the hierarchy. You know, in the first, it was very interesting. Was the first time I got the, um, the script through to audition for um, the, um, the Sontaran Stratagem, um, it was an earlier draft. And so there was much less differentiation in between the general style and um, score, the Bloodbringer. Um, and in later drafts, it was much more obvious in the writing that style is much more, is much more deliberative and he's sort of like, I mean, he's the general and score is just much more of the, yeah, the gung-ho sort of uh, Sort of um, in in both feet the way, and it was interesting seeing seeing that you know, that reflected in the writing, um, which is yeah, just writing. And, and obviously in 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 flux we meet lots of different Sontarans. So Craigar, who is the uh, Sontaran psychic core, yeah, he's absolutely. He says he's meant to be sort of knackered and white, wizened, and so like a, like a Sontaran wizard. And so and his voice very very like this, and of course. If you're in the studio talking like this very, very hoarse. Then poor old Johnny Watson opposite me, who's got who's also got, you know, sort of like a, a massive prosthetic head on. That's like, I'm sorry, Dan, I can't hear you. No. So, so again, that was that was a thing where, you know, for all of the takes apart from mine, I'm projecting like normal. And he's got a he's got a guess what I was going to be speaking on. It's it, it's the practicalities of it as well that dictate, you know, sort of um what uh, what what the voice will be? I mean, at least with with the finish uh, and sort of BBC audio stuff, it is entirely a vocal performance that um, that you that you're concentrating. So you can you know be, be a bit more fine tuned and also you can hear yourself. Um, but it's 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 so much it's it's true with so many of these sort of classic monsters in television. It's a vocal performance as much as a design. You know, it's quite a unity of it. Just thinking like you know, brain of Morbius, Michael Spice being this this brain. In a, in, a, in a jar that's like, a, ah, I'm like a sponge for it to see. You know, it's, it's got a wonderful sort of, um, it's got a wonderful sort of vocal attack. And also Wang Chiang, where he, you know, has a mask on throughout the whole thing, apart from one, apart from one point. But it's such a, it's such a presence, you know, it's such a vocal presence that fills, fills that story. Um, so I think you, that's, you've, that's all. You've just mentioned two characters played by Michael Spice. So mm. must yeah. have a bit of a thing for Michael and his acting. I think, well, I think yeah, I was, I was listening actually a couple of um, couple of months ago to the um, the old um, BBC radio version of the Lord of the Rings, 
which is uh, which is fantastic, which is Michael Horden and it's Robert Stevens and lots of lots of great you know sort of uh, British British actors, uh, and also clearly um, one of the ringwraiths is Michael Spice. So it's like, oh, okay, there he is. <laughs> so so it crops up, but uh, yeah, not not an actor that I've seen in anything else apart from apart from those things. But yeah, in terms of his vocal performance, that's kind of like, hmm, yeah. I just want to just a technical question for our budding actors out there. Um, just how do you warm up, warm up your voice, and how long does it take you to do that? Oh gosh, um, well I've been doing it for quite a long time, so I can, I, I, yeah, I can, I, I do, I, have, I do have a trained voice, but sort of like when, when I'm doing stuff in the theatre, I'm pretty obsessive about it. So I do at least about twenty minutes of specific exercises, and so like it works all the way out, you know. So, so first of all, you're working about sort of like you know the the, the, the support that your voice needs, you know, so like the um, sort of pitch and tone, and so like also where you're resonating from, and then so like articulation. So there's a fairly serious, just just as if you know. If you were doing, you know, you were running a race, sort of doing some, some some kind of physical activity, you would warm up certain parts of your body to make sure you didn't do yourself a mischief. It's a similar thing with the voice, and it's simply when you when you're doing the theatre, then I find that um, in order to do it night after night after night, I need to do that just to make sure that um, you don't you don't uh, you don't lose your voice or damage it in the long run. Um, and, and also the one thing which I think very few of us do, which one of my which one of my actor colleagues remind us is, is warming down after a show as well. Because your voice has been in a certain place, and then also warming it down as well is, is quite important too. But uh, sometimes you can sort of go straight to the bar and have a drink or two, and that's 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 that's, that's not very good for it. <laughs> so, um, but um, but with 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 audio stuff, um, I'm usually a bit quicker because you don't have to worry so much about projection. So you don't have to have the muscularity, the you know, the, the really heavy duty stuff. But you see, I mean, if you're doing shouting, actually with video games quite a lot, which are which are increasingly a thing that we're we're doing now. Um, you've still got to know how to protect yourself because if you're doing a whole, if they book you for an hour and you're getting shot, you know, on a spaceship, so for example, as you know, lots of these video games are, it can be, and everything's, you know, pitched up in that kind of battle thing, then you do, yeah. So it's basically mm, lots of, lots of sirening, sirening, getting, getting the, uh, your, your vocal range up. So getting, getting it high and low. And then there's lots of things which you can do to anchor your voice. So it's like pulling down your shoulder blades and sort of, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all quite technical. <laughs> I realise I've been doing this for quite a while, but um, you, 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 can, you, you can find these exercises. But as with anything, it's kind of, um, it's just practising enough times to, um, for it to be second nature. And also one of the things about drama school is not everyone has to go to drama school, um, you have talent will out. But one of the things it does give you is just, the whole thing of doing two years worth of voice lessons when you're lying on the ground humming, basically, is quite a lot of it. You do grow muscles in very odd places and you don't do that. There's no shortcut to that, really. So one of my friends teaches at, um, teaches, uh, at a drama school and he got his class to sort of put their hands up. OK, who goes to the gym once a week? Most of them put their hands up. Who goes to the gym so twice a week? Who goes to the gym every certain day? Well, still lots of hands up, right? Okay. How, how many of you do a vocal exercise every day? It's like, and, mm, I hadn't thought of that because it's not something you think of. You know, think about the, the body beautiful on screen or something. But and actually, you've you got to give your voice the same kind of respect, especially for doing this kind of work. So, yeah. Now, we, we will get to Big Finish shortly, but uh, for, for our podcast episode number 42, uh, that was a couple of years ago. Um, we actually did a review of Doctor Who and the Cricket Man, which was read ah. by you. And uh, I still fondly remember listening to that uh, audio. And that's the one where I suddenly listened. I saw Dan Stark and I thought, this this guy really knows how to 
impersonate, like you haven't got the sound of the person exactly, but the intonations, you are very, very skilled at, at, oh, I loved your Tom Baker, by the way. Lots of people do the Tom Baker and I love yours. Um, but, but the cricket man that, uh, and James Goss is a, a brilliant author as well. So, uh, for him to adapt that too. Um, do you remember much about that experience recording that one? Cause it sounded like a lot of fun. It was great. Yeah. It was, that was, um, usually with like, uh, with some of the BBC books, um, we would have two days for it. I think we had three because that was, that was quite a, quite a, quite a big, quite a big, um, quite a big record as I recall. Um, but yeah, just, yeah, it was uh, it was nine hours, so it was it was longer than your yes. normal Doctor yeah, Who. Physically, you've got to, yeah, and I was I was, I was yeah, it, it was nice. I mean, most recently, yeah, recently since post pandemic, I've been sort of home recording and stuff. But I remember it was it was the being being in a booth and not having to worry about recording yourself, having having Neil Gardner, the excellent producer, sort of like uh, of all that around there, being, being on this other booth and just being able to pick me up because every time you know you, when obviously when you're talking, it's nine hours of finished material, but um, yeah. Sometimes you do have to retake things, um, and it's just a sort of concentration that sometimes you can just go word blind. You know, when, when you've been talking, you know, especially you know after lunch, about three o'clock in the afternoon, when it's like it's sort of nap time, and you've just been rabbiting, rabbiting away, and all sort of you're just having having another another person such so as tap you on the shoulder and go, no, we need to retake, need to retake that. Shall we take a breather there? Yeah. So it's um that was that was, that was it's, it's, yeah it's it's quite it's quite it's quite a it can be quite a feat of endurance to do that sort of thing, but it's, 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 it's such a fun story. I mean, it's, it's that kind of um, life, the universe and everything done in the kind of, in the Doctor Who style. And, uh, and it's all those things, especially with all the, uh, with all the BBC books ones. Um, I get to cast the story as to who I think would play it. And so, I mean, one of the things, you know, where sort of like, where, which I, which I fell asleep to, you know, so like when I, when I was a kid, sort of like a virtual every night was uh, my tapes, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the original radio series. So I kind of absorbed those, you know, Douglas Adams' writing and the sort of style of it. And also the voices, you know, sort of, um, again, that, that sort of BBC radio rep from 1977, 78, you know, sort of uh, Richard Vernon, all those, all those, well, yeah, again, actors who sort of aren't particularly sort of well-known, but their voices are terribly distinctive. And so you're going to, you're such a disappointment to me, young Zayfard. You know, these things, these things, these things will come out. And so, being able to channel that into that that very specific <laughs> specific skill set into into that is, uh, was 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 great fun. Um, yes, and being able to cast one of the characters as Brian Blessed that's quite enjoyable. No stars twinkled in the cloudy night air. A warm breeze brushed over the sandy beach. The planet was, at first glance, on the pleasantly dull end of very ordinary, apart from the large letters blazing in the sky. A hundred yards out to sea, a door opened and the Doctor, Romana and K-9 splashed out, striding through the surf onto the beach. The Doctor and K-9 spent most of the walk arguing about the door. It's a fictional door, K-9. Could you not have moved it closer to the shore? Negative. Also, Master, the sea is similarly fictional. Still feels odd walking through it. Not to this unit. Whatever you say, my socks are soaked. Negative. Well, they feel soaked. Romana was already standing neatly on the shore. Are neither of you going to mention the large letters hanging in the sky? She asked. The doctor glanced up. Oh, them, he shrugged. That's just the matrix narrating. The words which hung in the air in giant letters of fire were... The planet of cricket lies in an isolated position on the very outskirts of the galaxy. Subtle, observed Romana. 
the doctor picked up a stick from the shore and threw it for K9. The dog ignored it. Look at the sky. No stars, which is strange as there's no light pollution. Mind you, it's overcast. Maybe it's the weather. The doctor clicked his fingers. The burning letters changed. Cricket is obscured from the rest of the galaxy by a dust cloud. Oh, I see, said Romana. Fascinating. So given the lack of any external lights, they just assume that they're not just the centre of the universe, but that they are the universe. That's pushing solipsism on a global level far beyond the egotistical sublime. The doctor chewed the air for a moment. Well, quite. They probably have a lot of mopey poets, and you've read far too many books. There's no such thing as too many books, Romana retorted, skipping up a sandbank. What an odd place. She clicked her fingers. The sky now read, in lowercase, For millions of years, Cricket developed a sophisticated scientific culture in all fields except that of astronomy. I changed the font, said Romana. Something a bit more subtle. I don't like being shouted at all the time. She glanced at the doctor meaningfully. K9, I think Romana's having a go at you. The doctor patted his dog and winked at her. Can we have the next slide, please? Romana obliged. In all their history, it never once occurred to the people of Cricket that they were not totally alone. Until... Dot, dot, dot. She frowned. The punctuation is a bit off. No, it's spot on, said the doctor. I'd step back a bit if I were you. Romana stepped back. So, yeah, and with that one, it's... Yeah, that, that one that had the whole sort of cast of the Hedgehog's Guide to the Galaxy floating around there doing it. There was another one I did um, called A Morality Tale, which was um, a John, uh, John Pertwee sort of story, um, which was kind of Doctor Who does the Long Good Friday. So it's set in 1952 in London, in Shoreditch. They're all East End gangsters. Um, and so that's, as you imagine, so like casting that in my head and so like working out what, what voice I'm going to use for that. First of all, they all come from the same place. They're all the same similar social class. They're all around the same age. So then you've got to, go, got to go, right, okay, how do I differentiate this? And so I sort of think, okay, that's Michael Caine. Um, that's uh, Bob Hoskins. Um, I'll do that. So I'll, I'll do that Bernard Breslau. So basically I've got a series of, <laughs> I've got a series of, you know, my script was sort of multicolours on there. So I'm just sort of, again, not in person, they're doing a full impersonation, but sort of like giving a vocal quality. And, it, and the, the point is to try and tell the story as, as well as you can do. So you can tell who's selling what to whom. So it's kind of... Um, yeah, because sometimes if it is dialogue-driven, um, certain sections of that, then it's better if it's punchier rather than sort of the same voice talking to each other. Yeah, so that's kind of a... But yeah, it, it, it's a particular... It's a particular that, that, that's what I find the preparation is, as well as the, uh, yeah, the, the nottier parts of technobabble. Now, one thing that surprised me uh, when I was just doing a little bit of research was that you have done a little bit of writing over the years. And every time I see your name, I get very excited because I like your style of writing. Makes me laugh. Um, and it surprised me that there was not as much as I thought. So uh, just the, the small amount that you've done, particularly for Big Finish, um, to me seems a lot bigger. Uh, but what was interesting was, was it the first story that you did with John Dorney, Terror of the Sontarans? Uh, yes. Terror of the Sontarans, yeah. 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 Now, now, my question is about that. You and John Dorney both seem to me to be very fast talkers. So how did you both how did you both get a word in on that story <laughs> with each oh, other? Oh, God. Well, John and I, I think, I think with that one, because it was the first one I, that I'd done, so John was kind of like holding my hand in that respect because obviously John is prolific and an absolute sort of like master of, you know, 
story master as a kind of thing. Um, I think I did most of the storyline on it um, in, in terms of the four episode things. And he gave me pointers, you know, so like in terms of how to structure things, how to put down ideas and whatever. Um, first of all, we sort of kicked around ideas and sort of that sort of thing. Um, then I came up with a kind of storyline and then we divvied it up scene, scene by scene. So, you know, kind of alternately, I'll, I'll write scene one, you write, I'll write scene three, I'll write scene five. If there are any specific things we really wanted to write, then it's like, we sort of like, um, we uh, split those between them. And then having done that, you get the whole sort of script and then we like swap them and then it's like rewrote each other's stuff. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's, that becomes much more difficult to remember who's, who's done what. But um, that was a good way to learn in terms of, you know, making making things work. Um, but yeah, I think we were, we were, we were um, corresponding more by email <laughs> and <laughs> but electronically rather than to like try and talk to face to face because no, John's, uh, you know, John is verbose. That sounds, that sounds pejorative, but no, yeah, you, you can chat. <laughs> Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor, Doctor, I think something followed us down the stairwell. Not now, Mel, I've nearly got this. <laughs> Something did follow us, Doctor! I am Stetimar, and this is my reckoning! Doctor Who, Terror of the Sontarans. The events of the last few days have driven us to the edge of madness and beyond. I've just sealed half my crew in the caves after they tried killing the rest of us. The others are upstairs in the observation deck worshipping the stones. We knew what we were doing when we signed up, but none of our training prepared us for any of this. I will blast you to atoms. Small your eyes, poor your aim. Come then, Lustjordan. I will tear the shell off you. Think, Ace, think. You're a Santaran warrior, but you're intelligent too, an officer. You're meant to be brains as well as brawn. Do you insult me further, sir? <laughs> Not so fast, you. Ah, let go of me! Get off! Taste my claws, Eggman! Big finish. We love stories. Just in terms of starting work with Big Finish, so 2011 you first came to Big Finish. Now, you weren't bringing the Sontarans there first. Uh, in fact, you had a number of audios you came to before the Sontarans came. Um, so how was it you came to work for Big Finish? Oh, gosh. Yeah, actually. And Robophobia uh, was your first one, just in case <laughs> you're not sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that was the first one released as well. Yeah, was that the one? Yeah. Like, just because with Big Finish, the, the recording schedule and the, and the release schedule can be quite different. Um, Actually, it was a couple of years before that, um, because the very first Doctor Who prom they did at the Royal Albert Hall, um, I was in that, and that was a wonderful bit of organised chaos with BBC Music and BBC, different BBC departments trying to interact with each other and going, what? Oh, I didn't realise you had to do it like that. So um, I, was waiting. I remember being in the dressing room, um, in the green room, so like in the Royal Albert Hall, and then seeing um, Nick Briggs and Barnaby Edwards sitting there with a laptop and the house I thought, oh, it's when you're in a full prosthetic suit so you've been wearing it for so long you sort of, you know have it stuck on at five o'clock in the morning you kind of you forget that it's you forget that it's there i bound over going hello i'm dan can i work for big finish it's like because <laughs> there's a big santara head looming over them but um yeah yeah what do what do you look like oh oh, oh the punch on my head. oh yeah okay well definitely definitely bear you in mind that's sort of thing. um but uh, yeah it was only a couple of years uh later when i actually sort of got got the call to uh 
to actually sort of go and join them for the first time. And um, yeah, then it was uh, Sylvester, wasn't it? Robophobia. And uh, Toby Haydick. Yeah, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was good fun. And uh, yes, and I remember, yeah, it was a whole thing of uh, doing that, sort of doing Kravner, who's like a, uh, who's sort of the uh, security chief, who's a bit down there like that. And I remember that one, I think. Was it that one? No, it was right there. It was the second one. No, it was Toby Haydick and Robo. There was that, and there was Hexagora. And they were around the same time. Yeah, they were. Yes, I'm, I'm, I might be confusing the, the, the two ones. Because they got, oh, yeah. But then, you know, Hexagora, that was it, where they sort of clocked that I could do voices, where I had to do the cricket commentary in the background. And so I impersonated Richie Benno for a little bit. Just, uh, I don't know, they made it steamed off. Yeah, there's a pigeon flying over there. And, so, and yeah, so it became obvious that I could just do lots of different voices. And also I knew some bad opportunities. Toby Haydock was in Robophobia too. It was, it was it's actually, it's just a list of fans yeah. actually because it, it's Nicholas Briggs, John Dorney, Toby Haydock, Nicholas Pegg, Dan Starkey, and then poor Nicola Walker wondering what the heck is she falling into. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, she's very nice. She's very very good. But uh, yeah, oh god, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blimey. Yes, yeah. So, 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 yeah, so that, that's over ten years ago now. So um, yeah, it was. It was it being a very fun day. And the first time I experienced a big finish lunch, which was uh, very satisfying. So yeah. So, I mean, you've just become a regular since then. Um, what, is, what is it about Big Finish that you enjoy working with? You know, what is it that you like enjoy working with them for? Well, it's, it's, it's like being part of a rep company again. You know, you, you sort of, you know, they, they, one, of my, one of my particular skills um, when I was on the BBC rep is that sort of like I'd studied quite a few different languages so I could do lots of accents, um, you know, and do them with a reasonable amount of authenticity and give people pointers on things. And again, with, with Big Finish, I've been able to like just, it's versatility, you know, even if I'm called in just to do sort of like about three or four voices, I can make them very, very different if I, if I, if I need to. Um, I think also having the cachet of actually having been in the TV series as well is nice, but uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a fun group of people. And it's also, you know, it's Doctor Who on audio and, and other things on audio as well, where, you know, the canvas is very, very big. And I think you get to play high stakes you know, with with uh, with Doctor Who and other things like that. It's it, it, it's it's you know, as I was also lucky that my first TV job at Drumpool was Doctor Who. Like lots of my friends, you know, had had their little part in Casualty. You know, so the long running BBC medical drama, which is an absolutely good bread and butter sort of thing. But then you're going to say, oh, it hurts, Doctor. It's like oh no, or something. You know, kitchen sink, some soap opera type stuff. With me, I'm shooting them with laser guns. You know, my very first day at work is like this, this is fun. This doesn't you know, which um. And again, with, with Big Finish, you, you get to, you know, you get to sort of have a very, very big canvas to sort of like to draw on and play on stuff. And you do have those with audio, with radio, with audio drama. It can be epic and also it can be totally, totally intimate as well. And I think it does sort of have those two. It, it can play, you, you can play with both those, you can play with the dynamics very nicely. And, and sorry, and also just basically they, they get fantastic, fantastic actors in as well. You know, you're, you're playing with, with good people. I mean, also simply because they have less money than sort of the BBC, they get people in who can do the job quickly and efficiently. And so, you know, you're working with very professional people and you can have a laugh about it. I don't know any actor worth their salt who doesn't enjoy doing radio plays because, you know, it's just, it's just such a lovely, you know, enjoyable, quick process. It's very spontaneous. And it's kind of um, yeah, and it's it's very pure in lots of ways as well. I guess as a fan, you've you, you've mentioned the talents of Wang Chang as one of your stories that you go yeah. to. Um, you you did actually have the opportunity to work with uh, Christopher Benjamin. Um, oh yes, and Trevor Baxter and Jago. Yes. So so what was that experience like for you? 
Oh, it's great. Yes. No, I was um, on Jago Lightfoot and Strax. That was the uh, the first first one. And uh, they're terribly nice. And uh, yeah, that was, yes, it's, 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 it's funny just sort of seeing them, you know, sort of obviously, you know, nearly 40 years after after the fact. <laughs> it's like there's a look a bit, look a bit different now, but so like, um, obviously they, you know, sound, sound, sound much the same. And then, um, Obviously, having Chris joining us on the uh, Paternoster Gang as well. But Merry Christmas to Jago. Yeah, it's great. They, that's they are Victorian Doctor Who in lots of ways. So um, yeah, it's you know, it's, it's it's great fun. I mean, especially Christopher Benjamin. It's like anything from the like you know like the Avengers or you know whatever he, stuff that he crops up in. You know, he was the, in the everything, man, wasn't he? Very, yeah, very varied career. You know, it's it's just really nice just being in the room with those with those kind of uh, with those kind of performers where you know there, there's an awful lot of you know, you're, you're part of a continuum. I think that's the thing which is, which is so nice about it. That's the thing which I really like being on the radio rep for, because you're, going, you're very aware that you're part of something that's been going on for a very long time, and it feels quite a privilege to do that. So, yeah. I mean, after Good Man Goes to War, the Paternoster Gang was formed and became a bit of a recurring family in the TV show, but then Big Finish brought it back as a series of box sets. How, how were you approached in terms of you know bringing your characters to Big Finish? Was, was everyone happy to do it? You'd already been part of the Big Finish family for a long time. I think Caitlin Stewart had done a couple of things as well. Catherine, um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, she's Catherine. Catherine, yes. It's Welsh, not Irish. Yeah, she gets very... <laughs> well, she, uh, yeah. you know she's Welsh by her accent. <laughs> yes. So us yeah. Australians, we can't tell the difference. Yeah, yeah well... <laughs> I, I've had to work really hard to keep talking about the UK, not England, because <laughs> I know oh, I've been... Oh, yeah, that really me up, actually. Yes. <laughs> and in America yeah. as well, it's like... So saying Wales is not in England. Yes. It's like saying Wyoming is not in Texas. Yes. <laughs> I know. I love Wales. Money. Um, I went to Cardiff, but it was a total dump. And more recently, and I can't believe how different the city is. It's astounding what they've done to it. It's yeah. It's it's, it's very changed. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So what 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 was the process in terms of bringing the the Paternoster game back to be finish and the whole box set series? No, I think I think there'd always been sort of like an appetite for some like you know further adventures with the Paternosters, and certainly Neve and I, you know, we sort of um, we sort of bonded because you know if you can get get on with someone at five o'clock in the morning, we'd be glued into a mask, and then sort of still getting on with them at seven o'clock at night when you've been peeled out of it. We would sort of like go back to the hotel and sort of like you know pick the latex on our face and think if we have a spin-off series, it'd be, it'd be like because you know there, there was there was a like a little thing in the end when we were when we were sort of slightly popular, but I think. Uh, it's it, it's nice that with Big Finish it could suddenly be a reality, and then we don't have to we didn't have to spend four hours being sort of like glued into our suits and everything. Um, I think you know, so sort of, Neve and I sort of definitely sort of uh, loved loved the loved the idea, and I think uh, and Catherine as well, you know, sort of very 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 happy too. Um, and I think I think they they did want it, yeah. The, the, the license, the license, the BBC gave them a license. So like I think they've been after it for a long time. By the uh, by, the time uh, by the time they got it, so I think they were very big. Finish were very pleased to, to finally get the rights to the Paternoster Gang to actually have that uh, to, to play with. And then I think on Neve's suggestion, um, we had a little um, sort of a meeting with um, David Richardson, the producer, Matt Fitton, our script editor, and Neve and I, and can't remember who else was there at Big Finish Towers, just saying, right, what do we want out of this? Because you know, so many times, you know, especially sort of. You, you, when you're standing, you know, when you're on set in a rubber suit, being glued into it, you've got an awful lot of time to think about things. So ask yourself questions. So if he's only got three fingers, can he only count up to three? You know, so I had sort of just lots of these. Uh, if you were having a series with the Paternoster game, what, what sort of stories would you like to see? And so, so Neve and I would just spat out lots of ideas. And so that became the first, you know, the, the, the first sort of like box set 
sort of like um, we, we had a kind of whole sort of season arc there, you know, within about half an hour's worth of chatting. So it's it's you know it's it's, it's really nice to be involved as a, 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 a as an actor there, where you're like coming out with ideas and then they sort of like get fed into um, they get fed into the uh, the actual final the final um the the, the actual the actual writing and the uh, the construction of, of the story as well. I mean, I've only had that once with one of the series that I did where they had sort of like a, you know, ideas that get put into the writer's room. But it's, 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 a, it's a nice privilege to do that where you feel like you're being valued as a performer as well. And so lots of the things, you know, we, we thought, you know, what, what, what are, if, uh, if the humans have got to tend, contend with the Silurians who are relic from the Cretaceous, what do the Silurians have to sort of like uh, worry about? And it's like, oh, something from, from their past or whatever. So that, that was a kind of thread that went into it. And sort of like, you know, what, what sort of like, you know, of the Sontarans did come back would Strax side with his friends in the Pekinotic Angle or sort of, uh, or the real Sontarans or whatever. So all those kind of questions that sort of people that asked us conventions, but also, we, you know, we've been thinking about for a long time. So um, it, it, was, it was lovely that they were, they were able to be fed into what became sort of like a heritage, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. The first episodes. Yes. And then we, of course, had our, we had our lovely sort of pilot episode, which was part of the 8th of March, the International Women's Day box set as well. Yeah. Which again with different production teams. So that was that was interesting one. Had a slightly different flavour to it, but it was it was a nice introduction to the uh, sort of launch the uh, pilots for the whole series. Can we expect another series? Oh, you'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Good answer. So do 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 you notice a different production team? It is it is obvious. I mean, I'm not, not I'm sure it's not uncomfortable, but it was obvious in terms of this is one production team. This is a different one. Just in terms of how they operate together. Yeah. Uh... It's still the same character, and all that. And it, it, it's it's all you know, big finish. So it's all it's 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 all sort of like you know work, works in a certain way. But um, yeah, just just, just diff, different set. Of, you know, it's a different director as well. That, that, that that's a crucial one too. So I think um, the International Women's Day was Helen Goldwyn, and usually it's Ken Bentley. And again, I work with both of them, and they're both they're, they're, they're fab and very good directors. But they've just got you know, just got slightly slightly different ways of working. But um, nothing at all. But. Uh, yeah, and I, th- I think it's the atmosphere of the atmosphere in the room with the actors they cast on the day because it's it's always you know it's, it's different. We've got a different cast every day. You know, Catherine and Eve and I are the same, but um, then you get a different uh, different group of guest guest performers in there, and it's uh, and it's uh, usually fun. It's always a but it was a slightly different dynamic. But um, and I, th- I think that's that's one of the one of the things that uh, it's having everyone and having everyone in the room and so sort of seeing what the dynamic is and slightly and capturing that, which has been interesting. Sort of when we've been recording things during the pandemic, where everyone everyone's separate. Just keeping that sense of conviviality and fun with it, um, and yeah, and so most of the time it works. But it just you've got to concentrate a lot harder when everyone's like down, a, you know, down a line or whatever. So it's, um, but as ever, it, it does work because you know, ultimately you can just hear people's voices, and you know, if you can create a character sort of like uh, just purely vocally, then of course that's um, that gives you something to play off and uh, sparks the imagination. So that's 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 the job. Recently, I listened to a short trip uh, called The Authentic Experience oh. uh, because we were, we were speaking with um, uh, Nicola and uh, I was surprised to see that uh, your name was on that at the time and I really enjoyed that short story. Um, can we expect some more? We, there's a few other things too, like one of my favourites uh, from last year was Bad Day in Tinseltown as well, which was oh, part yeah. of the part of the Silver and Ice box set, I think. That was a Cyberman story. So uh, what can we expect more writing from you? Is there something you enjoy or something you just dip your toes into from time to time? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm definitely an actor who writes rather than it's like a full-time writer, but it's like a, <clears throat> yeah, no, it, 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 it's, it's, great to, it's great to be invited, great to be asked, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I think there probably will be, again, I can't remember what's been announced, what's been released and whatnot, but um, de- de- definitely there, 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 will, there probably will be more stuff in the future to come with the authentic experience. I think that was, uh, yeah, by invitation, writing a little short trip, and that was absolutely drawing on the memories of um, when I was a kid. Um, Obviously, um, Colin Baker and uh, Nicola weren't on screen for about 18 months. So um, the Doctor Who comic strip became extremely important to me. And so there's lots of sort of like uh, in, in Doctor Who magazine, and there's lots of bits of them like going around spaceports and absolutely some weird aliens and that sort of thing. And so that was definitely this sort of like the opening image for that, where so like they're, they're on a spaceport and it's kind of, and they walk around there. And then I thought also, I think it's also, you know, give, giving giving Nicola something fun to do where she's actually sort of playing lots of different characters. And the fact that Perry, who, not all the time, but she did a fair amount of being strapped to a table or so like tied to a stake and so like, you know, perils of Pauline type stuff. Um, just giving her a bit more of a, sort of, of a proactive role in sort of, a, and so like, you know, adventuring around and stuff. So, um, yeah, that was, and also just playing, playing with textures, playing with textures as well and stuff. Um, yeah, as, as I recall, it was a little while ago that I wrote that. But, um, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, I did. And Nicola certainly uh, seemed to enjoy it too. She's very, she's, there's much more to Nicola than just Perry for a Doctor Who fan. Mm. She's, she's a very good actress and she's really good at uh, voices. So she's lovely to listen to when she's doing different things aside from, you know, your standard Perry voice as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was good. And uh, and, and, and then there was a good day in Tinseltown, which again, I think I think the way the way sometimes it gets approaches that sort of um, uh, there will be a kind of there will be a slot so it's kind of um, sort of Matt who's our script editor for the Paternosters as well so said look it's seventh Doctor so uh, and Mel so you're in season twenty four so that's a very specific kind of flavour so it's you know the very first story I wrote with John um, Terry the Sontarans it's a similar it's a similar kind of sort of flavour to that because that's 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 quite a, that's quite a particular sort of time in Doctor Who. Um, and two-parter and sidemen in space. So, oh, that, that, so those are the criteria that you've got. So, like, okay, what can I do with that? And um, and again, like with that, like with Terror of the Sontarans, I think the way in which I sort of constructed some some of the story was, um, I thought, who would John Nathan Turner stunt cast in um, in the late nineteen eighties? You know, who, who, who which which sort of like bankable stars would he try and get on sort of like the front of the Radio Times? And uh, so I thought that he might try and get Barry Humphreys. Um, so like to be uh, to be the mayor, so so, so we can have sort of, the discussing sort of Les Pedersen kind of a sort of a sort of type, type character, and um, another character we got sort of thing Susie Quattro might might turn up. So, and then so like the, the, I think I think I, yeah, I had the idea for somewhere else from so like kind of um, slightly slightly post industrial kind of place where there was a gold rush and then it sort of collapsed. So that sort of slightly sort of sort of western sort of area in space. I think also thinking about it, quite a lot of my scripts. I sort of set in disused mines. <laughs> Something about the subterranean, which was clearly it's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not claustrophobic, but the idea of being sort of stuck down a pothole really sort of like does a just, just yeah, it's it's quite a primal fear, I think. So I think quite a lot of Doctor Who stories are exploring sort of um, stuff that sort of stuff that's sort of like uh, stuff that make you know that that that, uh, that chill you. So I think it's probably sort of working through that as well. Yeah, I remember. I think I listened to this before you, Philip, but I did mention to Philip. That um, th- this that whole box set, your story and the other one that was on it, uh, fits so perfectly into season twenty four. I did say to him, "This is what season twenty four could 
have been. You know, <laughs> this was, you know, it, it, it actually fit the style, but it, it sort of had a, a much bigger scope, which you can do on audio, of course, mm. but yeah. uh, it yeah. just fit, it just fits season 24 perfectly, which is, it's a very sentimental uh, season for me personally. So it was, yeah, a pleasure to listen to that one. Yeah. And I think also that, that sort of, um, you know, just the, the, the indebtedness to um, things like 2000 AD, sort of British comics, in that way that Andrew Cartman was very, very into that sort of thing. And so you were embracing that with a very big, very sort of broad palette and absolutely sort of big characters and sort of, you know, populating the frame with lots of different sort of personalities and stuff. Again, because you can do that on audio, you know, as long as you've got versatile enough performers, which we do. So it's kind of, um, yeah. So, it's, yeah, and, yeah I, I enjoyed the... Um, um, the uh, the uh, one set on Reboss as well. That was uh, that's quite that was quite fun, quite 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 an epic too. So um, yeah, and of course season twenty four on screen. You know, there's there's you know obviously Ice World. You're trying to do the Cantina scene from Star Wars, and um, yeah, trying to do it on a BBC budget. It's a little bit a little bit different, but it's like, on audio we don't have to worry about that. That's all good. This is the tale of vengeance and of the ceaseless quest for power from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, the Seventh Doctor Adventures. Silver and ice. Where are we? It's dingy enough to be the Arctic Circle. Tinseltown, the city that never sleeps. Welcome, one and all, to the grand reopening of Mitzi's place. I'm the Doctor, Miss... Patraxis. Carol Patraxis from Galactic Central. I am Sandar, known to all as Sandar the Barbarian. What exactly are your questions? What are you doing here back in Rebos after all this time? Oh, great gods of Rebos. Gods of ice and gods of sun. How do you mean tinsel? All the sparkly stuff. Everything's made of it. The bones, your majesty. The bones have spoken to me. This never-ending ice time. There must be a reason. So we've landed at the wrong time? On the contrary, we've landed at the right time. But something's very wrong on Rebos. There is another threat. A traveler from beyond this world. This man is dangerous. Ice time is supposed to last no more than 32 years. We are the Cybermen. We've been spotted by a very large creature oh. heading this way. Quick, yeah, run! Shift error corrected. Cyber technology online. 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 Mitzi! The Doctor's cage! Ah. Attack the city! Attack! Release the battle, Shrivenzar. Big finish for the love of stories. Well, wasn't that bracing? There's just one more story I want to pick on um, specifically, and that's because we've talked about you working across lots and lots of different ranges, and of course, Torchwood is one that you have worked on as well. And there was oh, a, yeah. there was a story that really, really stood out to me. Uh, a couple of years back, or was about 18 months ago, called The Great Sontaran War. Is that what it was called? Yes. The Great yeah, Sontaran yeah. War set in yeah. the, was it the Mumbles Caravan Park? The Mumbles, yes. Yeah. With, with uh, Field Major Cat. Uh, it was absolutely brilliant. It was full of comedy, but sort of deep, heart-wrenching emotion as well. So interesting, Torchwood has a different format to Doctor Who, and you can explore different things mm. with these same characters. So did you, do you recall that from, from that Torchwood episode you did? Yeah, no, it was great. And uh, yes, it was, it was, a, it was a lovely, a lovely script from James Goss again, you know, sort of, of cricket men fame. Um, and Lisa Bauman directing as well. Who's, 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 who's great. 
and again that was one that was in, that was entirely you know sort of done remotely as well so we just had the other actors voices to sort of to contend with and stuff but it's um and it's almost a two-hander quite a lot of it is you know sort of like yanto and the santaran in a caravan you know something quite honest about that but just just things like the santaran getting a field map he, he gets he uh, santaran gets cat what's his name group marshal cat he is a born warrior and so like, the whole thing of santar and I mean, it's, it's, it's a different variation on the slide. You know, Strax is a fish out of water, um, you know, being a nurse. Obviously, he's in Victorian London, which is sort of like a parallel way. But sort of when you get the sheer grim mundanity of sort of, um, you know, sort of like a, 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 a caravan park in the Mumbles and a Santar and so like there. So like adjusting to, so like, you know, the, you know they, blowing people up is, is always an option. But so like a man's inhumanity to man, so like being being observed by a Doctor Who monster. That's kind of, a, it's, it, it, it's a nice setup. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of emotion to be run from it. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that, uh, the way Big Finish does that, uh, and particularly Tor- Torchwood, you, you know, they give you certain elements, like on paper, a Sontaran with a cat in a caravan park. How can that possibly work? But it is, <laughs> it was my favourite Torchwood story for that year, absolutely. Yeah. It, it yeah. doesn't look like it should work, but it does. I think that's what James yeah. Goss is really, really good at, is making these fantastic stories out of the most unusual things. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's driven by humour and emotion. And those two things just keep you connected the whole time. Yeah, it's definitely, it's rooted, rooted, rooted in reality. Yeah. With monsters. Jack wants you to fulfil your mission, to find out about humanity. And report back to the Sontaran Empire. Possibly go wrong. From Big Finish Productions. Torchwood. The Great Santaran War. Let battle commence! I am the most intelligent creature on the Mumbles Bay Caravan Park, let alone the planet Earth. Ya crackers! Let us advance on the other shower block and stain the drains red with the blood of our enemies. There is a problem with your tongue. I do not understand. Stop hitting the checkout. I shall not scream. You will never hear a Sontaran scream. You have a cat. The internet is mostly about them. Therefore, I have acquired one for a search. Finally, this is the great Sontaran War. Big finish. We love stories. Waiter! Waiter! I demand you release us from this luxury hotel and smack! Now, I'm not sure whether you are the... This is unique to you only, but you are one of, if you, if not the only actor, one of very few actors who has worked with every single Doctor from 4 to 13. In fact, you may... I, I don't know. I can't find... I was looking. I think you may be the only actor who've played with, you've played now with more Doctors than any other actor in history. Mm. Um, have you, have you realised that firstly? I, I, I think I've, I've been collecting them, got to catch them all. Um, but I suppose Nick Briggs has as well. Theoretically. Oh, you, yes, actually I hadn't thought yeah. about that. You're probably right. So, okay, yes, yeah. okay. So, so, but you're yeah. of a very small club of people. And he actually, he, yes. he, he, he met John Pertwee. So, okay, he, he at least met yeah. John Pertwee. Did, did, did he, I saw John Pertwee on stage. But so like that, so when oh, I was there playing, you go. But... It, it, didn't go well, it didn't go well with him and John, anyhow. 
that's another story. Um, what has it been like? What has it been first as a fan? The fact that you actually collected every Doctor from four onwards, which is pretty astounding. Worked with them all. Um, what, what in particular have you noticed? What, what what do we want to share in terms of differences in terms of performing style? Have you got different trainings in terms of you know when Tom would have trained goodness knows how long ago compared to Jodie, mm. who's probably one of the more or Matt, who are far more recent. Mm. What, what things stand you out? What, what what are the things that you hold with different doctors that you've met? Oh gosh, it's it's it's, it's a it's a very different energy. You know, each time because every, every performance is different as well. You know, it's like Sylvester, you know, didn't have any sort of formal training. He worked with Ken Campbell, and so he's you know, I, I I actually one thing before I went to drama school, I did I did a year's worth of impro classes uh, as evening classes, and that's all like that's kind of what we got what got me into drama school as well. Really, that kind of. That that's sort because of, it unlocked an awful lot of stuff for me. So so, Sylvester's so more like kind of alternative theatre, kind of end of the spectrum where he comes from. So I can I can sort of definitely see that that kind of uh, that kind of anarchism sort of coming out of him, which is which which is good fun, which is which just needs to be harnessed in the right direction. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, even slightly difference between David Tennant and Matt Smith. You know, I remember sort of Dave, David sort of coming in. I mean, I didn't really have many scenes with David. Um, but I remember even from the read-through, he was virtually off book, you know, actually knew what he wanted to do with it, boom, 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 you know, I'm the doctor. And Matt was much more, not on the back foot, but sort of like um, playing around with it. You know, he would have, would have done his preparation, but definitely sort of watching him on set, knowing the lines, and then start finding things, and then start finding a little, and then, because he was such a whirling dervish, you know, as a, as a doctor, you know, it's like this kind of like sort of lanky, lanky physicality that he embodied. And watching him sort of construct that kind of performance from the... Um, from the bottom up on, on set. And, and I also very, very conscious about using different takes to give different things, you know, so. But there, I was there, I was there on Peter Capaldi's first day as well, when it's like he was very open, it's like, okay, it's my first day playing the new Doctor Who and I'm quite nervous. So I was like, that's, it's all right, Peter. Um, but sort of, because, um, you know, Strax is the first person the 12th Doctor talks to. So I thought, yeah, that, that's another, another sort of like fun moment. So he opens the door and it's like, grumpy! And, um, but also the way in which he does it, in some ways, is pure Tom Baker, that kind of mania. As a kind of thing, um, and you can sort of see different things going there. And yeah, it's 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 it, it, it's interesting. But each one sort of brings different things to it. Um, and yeah, Collins Collins like very very always very well prepared, and he's like he's quite clear about what he wants to do with things. Um, but yeah, and, and Tom Baker is Tom Baker. You know, it's kind of um, it's great. When I wrote when I wrote him a story, I was delighted that I got a chance to uh, to, to write him a uh, write him a, a fourth Doctor adventure called The Bad Penny. And when I came in there, obviously, knowing the stories about sort of like how he used to treat writers, you know, the, the apocryphal stories about how he sort of threw a script off the room. Quads this, yeah. And um, he came in, he was like, oh, Dan, oh, I very much like this story. Do you mind, I'm going to change a couple of lives. Like, of course, Tom, please go ahead. But he'd, he'd made notes. He'd read it through about five or six times. And he made notes in tiny, you know, pencil, that sort of thing. And like, You've read my story, like, and also, you know, he's just making it more doctorish in certain bits and saying, oh, yeah, go ahead. That was that was a huge kind of um yeah Doctor Who read my thought he liked it so that's, that's, and not, um, and not yeah. declared to be whippet poo which is really good yes absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. pass that test but what are you going to say to Tom Baker when he asks you that are you going to say no I don't want you to change it no my words are sacrosanct Mister Baker yeah. <laughs> no. I think he knows the character quite well so yeah. Listen, Dan, thank you so much for your time. We, I know we could keep talking all sorts of things for, for hours more, um, but recognising the things, other things I'm sure you've got to do, and um, we've got to end the podcast at some point. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you very much. Pleasure. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, 
The Fourth Doctor Adventures. The Bad Penny. Mr. Tulip, it's just not good enough. The room's filthy and that racket was a last straw. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Vila, this is very gravely serious, or it will be if I do nothing about it. Then do something! Oh, oh! Oh, joy. Hello, the Cross Keys Hotel, reception desk. How may I help you? Ah, uh, Mr. Ronald, I wonder if you would do me the honour of joining me. Aha! This mirror is huge! There's a distinct time lag between what we're doing and what's happening in a minute. No! No! What is it, Edwin? What do you see? Oh, hell, fire and damnation! No! No! There you are! I've been waiting in this lobby for over half an hour. Where did you come from? The Millennium Urban Regeneration Company. Not there a moment ago. Ah, hello! Haven't we met before? I don't think so. I'd remember. There's something after me! No! I don't know what it is! You must run! The rest of you, follow me if you do not want to age to death! Who do you think you are? I think I'm the doctor, and this is Leela. You don't look like a doctor to me, more like a jazz musician. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Big finish. We love stories. That does sound very... So that was a fantastic chat there with Dan, wasn't it, Philip? Oh, it was amazing. We could have talked much more. And he's done so much that you can't possibly cover everything that he's done. So if you just do a search on TARDIS Wiki for Dan Starkey, you'll see a host of other things that we didn't even mention um, that uh, you can have a listen to or watch that he's been in. And yeah, he's got a he's got a great resume in the Doctor Who universe now. Yeah, so and we other talk, things. If we other didn't things. Talk about the story you really want us to talk about. Sorry, there's just too much there. Mm, absolutely. All right, so that brings us to our recommendations for the week. And um, let me just see. Whose turn is it, Wayne? I think whose turn is it? Yeah, it's been a while. You're asking me, as if I'd know. But I think I'm pretty sure it's your turn, Philip. So okay. go for it. Well, I'll go anyway, just in case. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to recommend we've been just talking to Dan Starkey, so we have to choose a Dan Starkey. I think. Well, I'm going to anyway. Um, we've mentioned it along the way Jago and Lightfoot and Strax. Um, this was, I think, one of the very first times one of the new series characters came across into Big Finish because it took a while for them to get the rights. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is one of the very, very earliest t- movements of any of the original characters. Um, so this, yeah, I think it's one of the first ones. Um, Jago and Lightfoot, I adore. Um, I can't talk highly enough about those amazing 13 box sets plus the 14th books plus the spin-offs. Um, you know, Christopher Benjamin, um, is just astounding in everything he does and, you know, still going fairly strong. And I'm hoping we, we get a few more things as well. Um, Trevor Baxter is just funny and clever and both of them very old, but they've maintained their voice. But it was just so natural to bring Strax into the picture with them. Um, they've had lots of experience with all sorts of aliens by this stage. They just take him so calmly and controlled. Um, Victorian London, it all just works. And Dan Starkey just plays beautifully with these two older gentlemen. So if you haven't listened to Jago and Lightfoot and Strax, uh, do make sure you do so. It's a great little yarn, lots of entertainment moments and some wonderful performances. What about you, Dwayne? Well, I'm going to recommend something that's a little bit left field today, and it's not Doctor Who 
related too much. I can I can tie it into Doctor Who, but I'm going to recommend an album that I was listening to uh, because I hadn't listened to it for a long, long time. Um, and I've been having a bit of a break from my Big Finish listening because I've been I've been delving my way through the Dead Star, which is the audio novel. So I'm about two thirds of the way through that, or maybe halfway. Uh, but I've been working on that recently, so I decided to listen to some music. And uh, so I dug this one out, and it it is the sixth album produced by Pink Floyd. So a lot of people only heard of Pink Floyd from Dark Side of the Moon, but that's their eighth album, believe it or not. So the sixth album is called Metal, and that was released in 1971. It's probably, depending on my mood, my favorite Pink Floyd album, uh, because there is a track on there that takes up the whole of Side B. It's called Echoes. So if you haven't heard Echoes, give it a listen. And I think that epitomizes the Third Doctor era. So if there's any piece of rock music from the 70s that's going to epitomize the Third Doctor, it's Echoes by Pink Floyd, which is on the metal album. So I recommend you go and have a listen to that. See, I tied it into Doctor Who, Philip. You did an amazing job there. Well done. (laughs) All right. That'll do us for this time. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And I enjoyed being in your rather, rather pleasant company, even though you're not feeling so well, Philip. Oh, well, I hope I was able to fake it most of the time. (laughs) That's a good trainer. I've loved being with you as well and loved talking to Dan. Until next time, we'll catch you later. Bye, everyone. This has been the Sirens of Audio, episode 146, Bring on the Clones, with our guest Dan Starkey and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Original theme music composed by Joe Kramer. Our website is sirensofaudio.com. You can email us at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or contact us via any one of our socials. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll hear you next time.